Well, if you've been with us uh, through the month of December, then you'll know that we've been uh, preaching an Advent series that we've called Advent Attentiveness. And it may surprise you that we're going to continue that series today um, with Advent Attentiveness. Uh, and the reason being is, uh, is that I watched my mom for years. I watched her very carefully. And I watched her attitude through the month of December gradually decline further and further and further until the day after Christmas when it would all of a sudden jump sky high and she would blare in the car and around the house her Sandy Patty Christmas album and, and uh, Amy Grant and other such nerdy Christmas traditions. And we would say, Mom, you can't do that. It's after Christmas. You can only listen to Christmas music from the day after Thanksgiving until the day of Christmas. That's, that's when it's legal. It is illegal now. You're out of sorts. You're out of accord. You can't do that. But actually, my mom was in strict keeping with the church's calendar. But not, we just didn't know it. We just thought she was kind of burdened down by motherly duties. Um, I heard a uh, statistic re- recently that 90% of Christmas festivities in the home are managed by the mother, and the father does a whole 10%, and that's playing with the toys with the kids, usually, which holds true for our family, for which I am very grateful. Um, I love Christmas. So, so my mom was in keeping with the church's calendar, which for, for centuries and centuries has been, um, has been this. Uh, Advent was the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Advent being a time of longing and lament and acknowledging that this world is still broken. There's still some. There's still things wrong with me. We need the Advent of our Savior. We need Him to come again and set all things right. So Advent was really the feast. I mean, the fast. Excuse me, the fast before the feast, and uh, and then Christmas tide is the feast. Christmas. Anybody know what day of Christmas we're on right now? It comes from a very annoying song. There's 12 of them in total. Yes, we're on the fourth. What do we get on the fourth day? Good job. Yeah, nice job. That song, however vastly annoying, is 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 a holdover from the from the church calendar, which many traditions still practice. There are 12 days of Christmas tide. So the 12 days after Christmas. We are supposed to party. This is, you know, this and Easter are our time. If anybody's happy, we should be, your lights should be turned on on the outside of your house. You know, your Christmas trees should still be up. It is time to celebrate that Jesus has come and that he will come again. So we're continuing uh, with this. And feel free to listen to Sandy Patty, you know, all the way for for eight more days now. That was supposed to be a joke. I, I'm assuming not many people listen to Sandy Patty. No? Okay. That's all right. Um, <laughs> Courtney liked it. She's barking. All right. So our passage today uh, is, about, uh, is obviously about Advent. It's about incarnation. And we've been preaching through these passages in Hebrews um, that have to do with the benefits to us as believers uh, and uh, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So... We come to this passage, and this passage is about help. This passage is about uh, our God's incarnation um, that provides help for us in our time of need. It it tells us that Jesus, through his incarnation, became sympathetic, and so he can offer help. Um, This sympathy 
His experience, his, uh, his incarnation uh, gives us two great um, gifts uh, in our time of need. It means that he is approachable and that he is generous. He is approachable and he is generous. He's sympathetic. Jesus uh, lived, uh, lived our life. It said, the pastor says he took on our weaknesses and our temptations, and, uh, and he knew us inside and out. He knows what it's like to be human. He's lived in our skin. He lives in human skin. And, uh, and, uh, and so he knows us in and out, and that in him produces sympathy. Uh, there's a book that was made into a movie recently called Gone Girl, um, which was, uh, I, I've not seen the movie, but I read the book, and it's a, it's a murder mystery, but it centers around a marriage, uh, and a marriage that is in a crisis and an advanced state of decay. Um, both partners are to blame, uh, to blame, uh, and the wife, Amy, uh, who's married to Nick, whom she despises, she has a very active mind and very, uh, you know, she, she watches everything. She's very intuitive and intelligent, highly intelligent, and she knows Nick inside and out. She knows when he's uh, going to feel certain things. She knows when he's going to do things before he does them. She knows what he wants for dinner before he's even thought about dinner that night. Like, she knows everything about him. But when she, when she sees him from the inside and sees those weaknesses and those shortcomings and those failings, it leads her to despise him. Her knowledge of him leads to bitterness and anger. But, God, but Jesus, Jesus knows us inside and out in that same way. But he does not come to despise us. Dorothy Sayers says this about the incarnation. She says that it means, for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall into a condition of being limited, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while. You see, Jesus knows us inside and out and has experienced our weaknesses and our temptations, and it leads him to sympathy. It leads him to understand and, uh, and, and to, uh, to love because he chose it. He wasn't subjected to it. Philippians 2 said he laid down his glory. He took up humility on purpose for the sake of love. One of the worst experiences in any relationship, you know, spousal, family, uh, friendships, or, uh, or roommates, uh, co-workers, is, is to say something to another human that is, that is intimate, that's personal, that is, uh, ha- had previously been private, and, and when you speak it out, and it just is dropped. I had a boss um, who, was, who, who I had a tough time with this. It's been like the last nine months. It's been a real challenge with this boss. <laughs> just kidding. It's not Eric. Previously, a while ago, I had a boss that I, that I would come to him and say, 
uh, we'd have our weekly meeting, and I'd say, I'm just really struggling with this or that aspect of my job. I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling unable to, to, to do this. I feel like I just don't have what it takes to accomplish. You know, I'd, I'd kind of bear, uh, bear my, uh, you know, my insecurities to him and kind of lay it, lay it open. And it would just feel like I just, like, was right there on the floor, and like, bam, it was just this dead fish like slimy and just laying on the floor that no one wanted to touch. And he was like, all right. And I laid it out there, and it was terribly painful. Right? That's the, that, that feeling, and all of us have experienced it someplace in our lives. It's awful when they just don't get it. Or they give some trite answer. Like, you know, it, and they don't understand what you've just shared. That never, ever ever happens with our Savior. He has experienced all of our weaknesses and all of our temptations. And no matter if it's the, the, you know, the 10th or the 12th or the 100th time you've come to him with the same thing, it never falls flat. His sympathy never runs out. There's nothing that he doesn't understand. And he knows that shame and fear will never change his children. You are not met with contempt. You are not met with, uh, with a wagging finger. Because he is so good. He knows. He knows. He's lived in our weakness. He's lived in our temptations. And he knows that only, only love drenched in hard-won sympathy can begin to heal his children's sinful hearts. And this, this sympathy is something that he offers right away to you and me. It's something that he gives us. It's something that he gives us. But you and I so often act like we have a Savior who has no sympathy. We do all kinds of things. Rachel and I, my wife and I, one time had this um, discussion about time. Uh, we have very different views of time. I'm not going to say who's right or wrong. I'm sure you'll find out uh, after this. But we have this very different views of time. We are supposed to meet this family at the local pool, and we're going to their kids, or we're going to play together, and have you know it's going to be a great time. We'll have a picnic lunch or something like this. And 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 uh, we had said, yeah, we'll be there. That's great. I knew about it. I said yes. And then also this other friend said, hey, Corby, at the exact same time, I need you to come with me to this other place to pick up these rental vans for a trip I'm taking these teenagers on tomorrow. Can you do that with me? Yes, I can do that with you. That's no problem. And Rachel said, wait, what? I said, well, you know, I'm going to meet them at the pool, and it will be like I might miss, but I'll, you know, just a little, and it's kind of like ish time anyways, right? Like I'll be there. And she said, no, wait, you don't, no, you can't do that to, you can't do that to our friends. You can't do that to either of your friends. You've double booked yourself. Do you realize you can't be both places? I said, Rachel, look, (laughs) this is hard for you to understand. You come from this different kind of background, this different family where everybody was all uptight and on time and stuff and (laughs) only made one set of plans, but where I come, just my experience, the way I, I'm just much more, I, I look at time differently. And she kept saying, but like, do you think that our friend who's waiting to hang out with you at the pool will like that you have made these other plans? 
Do you think that your children and me will be fulfilled, loved, and cared for? That you've said yes to us, yes to them, and no to us? Rach, wait a second. You're going the wrong direction here. You're just, you're coming at the, we're just, here we are. You know, if you could just, and we kept going, and she kept saying gently, like, it's not going to work. Do you see that it's not going to work? And I finally, I just kept trying to defend myself and keep coming back. And I said, Rachel, I just want a little bit of sympathy and a little bit of grace here, okay? And she said, Corby, sympathy is for weak people and grace is for people who admit they're wrong. Man. Man. So she admitted she was wrong. this kind of experience, avoiding guilt. Um, we have a lot of ways of avoiding our weaknesses. Um, you know, we, we, we can blame shift to other people, somebody else's fault. If they had only done what they were supposed to do, I wouldn't be in this position. Uh, we can hide it or fake it. Uh, I read an article in the New York Times about marriage as portrayed in social media. And the writer said that that most aspects of life that are difficult, challenging, often sad, are, tend to be portrayed fairly accurately, like loss of job or, or you know, career change. That's, that's out there pretty accurately. Difficulty with kids or with friends or with roommates tends to be out there. You know, th- th- there's the highs and the lows. But marriage, marriage is kind of this, like just skipping along the mountaintops view in social media, that you get like the engagement pictures and you get the wedding pictures and then you get like, anniversaries and only ever smiling and happy and and all this and and um and and the writer was saying you know we're probably setting a pretty false precedent for an for an upcoming generation for what marriage is um and how how we experience it we're never if we're not honest i'm not saying that social media is the place to like air your spouse's dirty laundry but um but the point is that we hide our weaknesses Right, that we together with our spouse decide on this happy marriage brand that we're going to put out to the world. And even if it's not social media, maybe it's that you spend three hours cleaning before anybody comes to your house so that they don't know that you actually have dust mites under your, you know, under your uh, bed or whatever. Um, we hide a lot of our weaknesses because we believe that there is no sympathy for the weak. We believe that there is only condemnation. There's only rejection if they're found out. But we have, we as as people who belong to Jesus, have a much better way of dealing with our weaknesses. Better even than, than being honest on Facebook. We have a Savior who is both accessible, he'll never turn us away, but he's also equally as generous with his help. You see, if he only was one, if he's only accessible, that would be nice for a little while, but it would just turn into an impotent counselor. I was having a, uh, going through some tough things for a while, and I was, I was walking uh, through that with this counselor, who was a great and very empathetic man, and I love him and I respect him to this day. And what I, what, after a number of months of, of meeting with him, 
what I found out would happen was I would say, look, I, you know, I was really short with my kids today, or, um, you know, I'm just feeling kind of, I'm feeling scared that, like, maybe I don't, maybe I won't be able to provide for my family, or, you know, I would, I would, I would tell them something that, that I knew was a disbelief in the God that I serve and not loving towards other people. And, um, and his, his response was, was always sympathetic. I understand that, man. Gosh, yeah. And you know what? Like anybody who's in your position would feel that way. It just is. Anybody would feel that way. You know? It makes a lot of sense. But that's all. That's sympathy without any generosity. You know, that, that's, that's compassion with no power. And I ended up getting to the end of it and just saying, man, this is not, I don't have any hope. You're not offering, I have no hope that things will change, that I'll grow, that I'll begin to love other people, that I'll begin to trust my Heavenly Father. But we serve a Savior who is as generous as he is sympathetic. You see, because, because sympathy combined with power equals generosity. Sympathy, feeling what we feel, combined with power to change and authority to do, equals generosity. Robert Weber says that the point of the incarnation is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus is accessible in his sympathy. And he'll never turn you away. Not because he has unconditional positive regard for you. He, in fact, has a very real agenda for your change. But because he knows that his power and his love alone will turn you into the best version of yourself. You and I... You know, Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has power to drag us along. It's, uh, it's one way to look at it is the great do-over. Did you ever have do-overs as a kid? You know, when you were in some sporting game or a board game and there was discrepancy about the rules and people and the, uh, things would start to escalate and then, like, the, the middle child peacekeeper of the group would say, do, wait, 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 just do over, do over, let's do it over. Or if you were kind of the alpha member of the group and you just didn't like the way the dice rolled or something, do over, we're doing a do over. And you get to race everything that happened and all the consequences of that last move and start again and try it again. You see, our God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of incarnation. He's not a God of second chances because we would never get the do over right. We would continue to mess it up. We would continue to run away from him. But he sent Jesus as our do-over so that he could get it right in our place, so that he could live the life we should have lived and then die the death we deserve to die so that he could drag us with him in his resurrection. He can sympathize in his incarnation, and he's got power because he is our high priest who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God. The passage uses that language because Son of God is king language. He's saying he is victorious. He is the ruler. He's got sympathy and power, which makes him generous. You and I don't have enough hope to remain empathetic. 
like walking with a friend through depression for a long time. You keep saying the same things. You keep praying for him. You keep listening. And it just never changes. Do you know why you stop feeling it with them? you know why you you start to to pull back and detach? Because you lose hope. That's what kills sympathy, is losing hope. They're not going to change. It's never going to get any better. Be like Rachel. She's not here today, my wife. She's sick. She's been sick, and she's still sick, and it's nasty cold. It's just yucky. It's nothing like life-threatening. It's just yuck. And she said yesterday, she's just feeling tired of, like, taking care of the kids while she's sick, and because um, I only play with the toys. So she was doing all that. And she just said, she said, I just, God, I just want to get better. I feel like I'm never going to get better. Like I'm just never going to feel anything different. It just feels awful. And that's the way we do when we, uh, when we just start to distance ourselves from a friend or, uh, or a family member who we've been walking with in, in sympathy. We lose hope. We say it's never going to get any better. We're like the boxer in Jack London's short story, A Piece of Steak. The story opens with this man sitting at a table, sopping up with a piece of bread, sopping up some flour gravy, and putting it into his mouth for the last bite, clean plate, and he, and, and he thinks to himself, but I'm still hungry. And everybody else in his household has, has gone without that night. His wife and his two kids even went to bed hungry so that he could have enough nourishment to box that night. He had a match that night, and he had to win because if he wins, he gets the person. If he loses, he gets nothing. And so he goes, and the story is called A Piece of Steak because as the boxer goes through the night and fights, and, and fights this fight, a long, long fight, he keeps thinking, if only I just had one piece of steak that I would just really be full, I'd really have the energy to go. And it comes down to the last blow, and he doesn't quite have it in him and, and for the lack of a piece of steak. He loses. You know, our sympathy, our sympathy is often like that. Or even our boldness to approach the throne is often like that. We just don't have the hope to make it through. We don't have the power to run that long race and keep coming back to the throne for help in our time of need. I think Jesus is much more like Gandalf in the recent uh, Hobbit movies. Gandalf has this great belief in Bilbo, right? Bilbo is, is, is weak and he's petty, and, uh, but Gandalf keeps saying, I've chosen this burglar. I've chosen him. He's going to get the job done. Gandalf believes in Bilbo, but he also knows that he's a wizard, that Gandalf is a wizard, and he's going to be able to help him, Right? He shows belief through those weaknesses. He stays close to Bilbo, doesn't pull away, doesn't stop believing him. And that is the way Jesus treats you and me. Even if, even if we keep coming back to him with the same failings and weaknesses and temptations. He's able to remain gentle and offer help because he knows his own power at work in our story. Isaiah 53 that we read says, in essence, that Jesus bears our sins and our sufferings and our weaknesses so that one day he could bear them away. He carries them. 
He's the one who's done the do-over. He became weak, living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. The great do-over. He was raised in power and perfection, having defeated death and sin and weakness forever. So we can approach his throne with boldness or with confidence, as the passage says. Whenever I lose boldness, it's because I've lost certainty. Right? Think about any decision that you have to make when you're not bold and courageous because you're uncertain. And when I'm not bold to move towards the throne of grace to request help is because I lack certainty. I lack certainty that I have a great high priest who can sympathize with my weakness, but who is powerful and generous in his help. If you find yourself stuck in sin, and, it, and, and, you've, and, and it's private, and, you, and it's quiet, and it's in the dark, it's because you've forgotten that you have a sympathetic and powerful high priest. You've lost confidence in him. You've stopped praying to be delivered from pornography. You've stopped, uh, you started just making excuses to get around some secret sins because you've believed that it will always be this way, that I can't defeat this, that this prickly, sickening, oppressive temptation will only go away if I give in to it. But Jesus knows what it's like to resist temptation. He also knows that it won't always be this way. He is patient and powerful. We can go boldly to him for help in our time of need. Likewise, whenever I lose sympathy for someone, it's because I first lost hope. You've lost hope that, that our great high priest has the power to rescue. You've lost hope that one day, as we celebrate his advent now, he will come again. As we celebrate his first coming, we anticipate his second coming. And he will come again to put all things right. Jesus never loses hope because he, in his incarnated body, in his flesh, took on our weaknesses in the manger, and he took on our sin on the cross so that in his flesh he could experience the hope of the whole world in resurrection. His certainty of, his, of your rescue is so rock solid that he will never stop caring about your weaknesses and temptations and failings and sinnings. And that's the strength that he gives you to turn out to other people. I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of Team Hoyt this uh, father-son triathlon team. They do a lot of races. But back in the 70s, this, this young boy um, turns to his father and says, I want to race. I want to run this road race for, uh, for this, this other child in his school district who, who uh, contracted a, a terrible disease. And, uh, and the father, Dick, says to the son, Rick, you can't run. Uh, you're a quadriplegic. It's not going to work. I'm sorry. We can find out some other way. And the, and the son persists. No, I want to run. I want to run. And so what ends up happening is that Dick pushes his son, Rick, in a five-mile race in his wheelchair. And he pushes him along. And then they, they, that went so well that they try other things. They, and they start to do triathlons. 
and, and, and Dick puts his son on a flotation device and swims with him through the water, jumps on a bike and, and, and perches his son on the front and, and a specially made seat so that he can ride this road race and then pushes him in his wheelchair for the run. He's done Ironman triathlons like this. It's pretty intense. There is speculation that Dick would have been one of the great elite racers ever if he had just dropped his son, if he had just done it himself. But you know, you and I have experienced that same carrying through life. Jesus, Jesus slowed himself down to incarnate with us. Jesus carries us across the finish line. And he calls us to do the same. He says, he calls us, he says, we can slow our lives down to care for somebody who is, who is a weight to us. You can slow yourself down. Jesus will never stop caring for you. He'll never stop answering you with gentleness and generosity because he knows with unswerving certainty that you are headed for deliverance and victory if you belong to him. Amen.